Hello and welcome back to another episode of Iconic Test Series Podcast. In this episode, we will look at the 1995 Test Match Series between the West Indies and Australia. The West Indies were a dominant force during the 80s and early 90s, having last lost a Test Series to New Zealand back in 1980. Whilst they still had great players including Brian Lara and the formidable bowling duo of Curtly Ambrose and Courtney Walsh, a lot of the players that made the West Indies great in the 80s had retired, including the likes of Vivian Richards and Michael Holding. As for Australia, they were on the up. A 3-1 series win in the 1994-95 Ashes over arch-rivals England set this series up as an unofficial World Test Championship final between the two best teams at the time. Joining me to discuss this series is Lewis Cameron, Lewis was a former first-class cricketer for Victoria, who now works as a journalist for Cricket Australia. This is Iconic Test Series. Coming into the series, West Indies uh, were in amazing form, having not lost a Test match series since 79-80 away in New Zealand. As for Australia, obviously, they were coming into the Ashes in pretty good form themselves, uh, having beaten England uh, in their previous Ashes series 3-1. Um, was the feeling coming into this series, was this like an, almost like an unofficial uh, World Test Championship? Yeah, 100% it was, yeah. And I think that's the exact words that Jimmy Adams used when I, when I spoke to him about it. Um, I, I think I spoke to maybe about a dozen players from from both teams for for a three part oral history I did with cricket.com. And um it, it did feel like that, yeah. Kind of I guess what we have now with the World Test Championship. Um, so it, it kind of felt like that. Australia were kind of on the up. They'd obviously beaten England uh in a breakthrough ashes series in eighty-nine, going back six years before that. Um, obviously the gadding ball happened in nineteen ninety-three, so they were starting to win Ash series away. Um, and you know, they had McGrath, young McGrath, uh, Shane Warne, you know, Mark Taylor as a young captain, uh, Steve or Mark War. So, all these guys who we now know are household names, they weren't at the time, you got to remember. So, in '95, they were still kind of just proving themselves. Uh, whereas the West Indies, they were kind of almost in the opposite trajectory. So, they, um, you know, we all hear about as cricket fans, the 70s and 80s, uh, teams that they had. Um, the amazing bowlers, they had the amazing batters, but this team had one incredible batter in Brian Lara. Uh, they had Ambrose and Walsh in two, you know, generational bowlers, but they were probably the last two that they'd had. Um, so it just kind of felt like they were on the downslope while Australia were were just, you know, kind of nipping at their heels. Australia, I should mention in 92, 93 um, in Australia, Australia got really close to beating them uh, and kind of had a heartbreaking couple of losses Um so they couldn't even beat West Indies on their home soil. So that's how good uh, the West Indies were back then. Yeah, and unfortunately for Australia, just coming in to, before the first test match started, they had a couple of injuries, especially to a couple of key uh, experienced bowlers, Craig McDermott and Damien Fleming, both missing the tour. Was that a was that a massive fear from the Australian camp going into the side um, that those bowlers weren't going to be there? A hundred percent it was. Yeah. And I actually kind of had to tease that out in the, in the article that I was writing about it, because I think people look back now and kind of go, well, 
Fleming, McDermott. Yep, they were they were good bowlers, but you know they had McGrath and Warren. But you got to remember the four bowlers they use through that series: McGrath, Warren, uh, Rifle, and Brendan Julian. None of them had played more than a, do- a dozen tests. So Shane Warren was kind of yep, he'd had the gutting ball. Yes, it was yep. We may have a generational leg spinner, but you know no one had he hadn't really proved himself, uh, and and neither had McGrath. So. Um, the, I mean, the speaking to Mark Taylor about it during um, for for this piece, uh, he was basically saying he was going for a run with him, and then he tripped over like a seawall. Uh, I can't remember what island they were on at that point, but um, he basically tripped over, and he had to run back to the hotel to get the to get the physio. And that was McDermott was kind of considered their best bowler at that point. So um, massive, massive losses, and it kind of felt like this monumental task had just gotten harder, I suppose. And as we enter the first test match, I guess those potential fears of Australian inexperienced bowlers kind of vanished, especially with Brendan Julian, who picked up four wickets, including uh, Brian Lara, who I think was out in quite controversial style as well. Um, how much confidence do you reckon uh, this gave that that bowling lineup with Julian, Paul Rifle, and obviously, as you say, a young uh, or younger Warner McGrath? Massive, yeah, massive. And, you know, Julian had kind of gotten off the plane late. He didn't, he wasn't in the original touring party and only went there because McDermott hurt himself. It's funny looking back at the scorecard there and Julian was the one opening the bowling and uh, McGrath was bowling second change. Like that kind of seems crazy that there was a point in McGrath's career where he, he wasn't taking the new ball. Massive uh, for for him to kind of get that. And um, someone kind of told me when, you, when you're doing these pieces, you know, from a journalist point of view that, Often it's the people in the peripheral who kind of give you the best answers around things like this. So, you know, obviously, you know, speaking to Mark Taylor and, uh, and Steve War and and those Richie Richardson, those guys about it is, you know, they're the the main players, they're the captains or the you know the leading players. But for Brendan Julian, this was the highlight of his career. Like I, I think he only played a few more tests after this to beat be part of that West Indies. Um, you know, the team that toppled the West Indies was huge for him. So, yeah, he, he was probably the eleventh you know, player picked in that team. So for him to kind of go out there in the first innings, first day and uh, knock over Lara, yes, controversial circumstances, but um, yeah, big, big game, you know, a big, um, you know, you kind of look around and if you're in that dressing room and you go, well, if he's our worst player and he's capable of doing it, maybe we're on to something. Mm. And obviously they, Australia went on to win that first test match by 10 wickets. And I believe this was, it was the first time Australia had ever won at Kensington Oval. How, how much of a hurdle was this to overcome for the Australian teams, knowing that they could beat such a strong West Indian side rather than just believing, I guess. A hundred percent. Yeah. Massive. Whether the, you know, the Barbados thing in particular was big, my history on the actual grounds is um, probably not that good, but it was more, I remember just speaking to them that first test in terms of just knocking over the West Indies and yeah, they, that lineup wasn't quite what it was, um, but they, you know, they'd all grown up watching Richie Richardson and, um, seen Ambrose and Walsh, you know, just do terrible things to their batters over the years, both in Australia and the West Indies. So there was this kind of sense of, um, you know, how, how teams would end up uh, thinking about Australia, right? Like thinking there's a lot of parallels with the 2005 Ashes where England, uh, I've heard Michael Vaughan talk about how he had to kind of sum up, you know, muster up this courage to kind of see past McGrath's record, see past Warren's record. That's what Australia had to do with, you know, Ambrose and Walsh and, and Lara and Richie Richardson. The happiness is not reflected all around the ground. The majority of the people here have been once more stunned by a West Indian defeat on the ground where such a thing was inconceivable 
up until a year ago. Mm. And unfortunately, um, in the second test match, it was uh, ended as draw due to the rain, uh, mm. meaning that West Indies uh, could not afford to lose a third test match. Otherwise, they would have lost the series for the first time since 1980. Has there ever been a time uh, in that kind of uh, 80s period where a team has ever put um, the West Indies under that much pressure during a series? Really good question. Really good question. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I do know that West Indies hadn't lost a test series. They might have drawn a few along the way. They definitely hadn't lost one. I think it was in about 20 or 25 years. So this was kind of unheard of dominance. I mean, even the great Australian team of, uh, I guess, probably starting from here, right, from 95 through to probably 2005, maybe 06, 07, if you go that far, um, they lost series along the way. Like they, they lost the 05 Ashes. They lost, you know, with, a, with an amazingly good team. Uh, they lost 2001 in India. Uh, and, you know, so a few West Indies were just incredibly dominant over that period. So, uh, yeah, as you're kind of pointing out, like that's the, that's the kind of hurdle they had to overcome. Coming into the third test match at uh, Trinidad, obviously one of the big uh, talking points was, was that uh, pitch, how kind of unprepared it was. It was very green, not very cut very well from both teams perspective how how did they feel going into that into that test match yeah well i mean australia was spooked by it i mean i think mark taylor his line was he uh, i interviewed him over the phone and he said that um he was looking at his back lawn and that was the you know that's exactly what the pitch looked like like it was just um completely green so i mean it was a kind of a desperate move by uh by west indies really because i think that was that they were a bit spooked uh by how they'd lost that first test in particular. The second one, you know, could have gone either way in terms of the the draw. I think they were two for eighty odd chasing um two seventy, but probably weren't in the in the best position. So they're kind of thinking, right, this Australian team's got us by the balls a little bit here. Um, we're gonna to have to do something a bit different. And it's a brave one to obviously they had these two incredible bowlers in Walsh and particularly Ambrose, but yeah, you're probably making things life life harder for your batters uh, by doing that. And you're probably, you know, just hoping that um, what was, what was clearly a, a better um, batting lineup from Australia would kind of be neutralized a little bit by that. So um, yeah, massive gamble for for them to do it, but it kind of paved the way for, for one of the greatest, um, you know, one of the enduring memories of the, the series, I suppose. Mm. And certainly one of the most enduring memories of the series was the um, confrontation between Curtly Ambrose and Steve Waugh. Um, firstly, have you have you ever witnessed um, or heard anything like that? And just explain what that was like from maybe talking to the Australian camp uh, during that particular moment. Yeah, like, first of all, no, I haven't seen it. Like, I was, I was three when this series got played. So I kind of... At the time, it was kind of one that, you know, as I grew up, everyone kind of talked, cricket fans would talk about how important that was. Uh, but cricket changed, I suppose, in the the years after that. We kind of had the, there was a famous Australian West Indies one as well with Ambrose and Dean Jones, where um, Ambrose tells, sorry, Dean Jones tells Ambrose to take his white um, sweatbands off in a, in a one day. So that was kind of similar where Ambrose had this kind of, um, this arcing up kind of reaction, but uh, I, I don't think they were ever, you know, going to come to blows or anything like that. But to su- suggest that, um, for, you know, the body language suggests that he's kind of thinking that, and then for Richie Richardson to be kind of dragging away. I mean, that was kind of telling in, in one instance. And 
the speaking to the West Indian guys and the bit that I was kind of um, really interested by was there's a lot of kind of divisions uh, even now, like, you know, 20, what was it? 25 years on. So 28 years now um, guys are still have these kind of bitter feelings about it. So Richie Richardson kind of, um, you know, stands his ground and, and says, you know, I made the right move, but I think Ambrose at the time was really frustrated that Richie Richardson kind of came in and um, almost questioned his integrity a little bit by the way he, um, the way, the way he did that. I think the whole bowling attack was kind of pissed off at the batters because they weren't making enough runs. I know, I mean, speaking to Winston Benjamin of all people, who's kind of like the the backup guy, he, he basically just said Richie Richardson couldn't captain. Um, and, you know, he's, he's telling me that 25 years on, like that's, that's incredible that he still kind of holds, holds these grudges. So there's all, all these um, kind of little warning signs, I suppose, for West Indies cricket. And, you know, a lot of those tensions kind of bubbled over into sadly what they've kind of become now, but, uh, and yeah, so from the Australian point of view, um, I think it was massive for them in terms of, so we talked about the first test and getting that belief, uh, kind of almost like a, um, even though they, you know, they lose this test, right? Like they don't make enough runs, uh, in that innings. Uh, but it was, it was a symbolic kind of thing. And I, I think they got the sense of that picture being on newspapers back in Australia. Like that's, that's an amazing, um, sign and kind of, kind of tells the story even though they did lose that test kind of tells the story of what was unfolding uh, they're exchanging a few words out there uh, batsman and bowling it's, uh, it just shows you how serious uh, these two are mm, and obviously as you say West Indies uh, won the test match by nine wickets and leading uh, into the fourth and final test match at one all mm. from speaking to the Australians have they ever in that leading into that fourth test match have they ever um have they ever felt as if they're in a more important test match as this fourth test match was, even with Ashes series and all that, all other test matches that they may have played? I was really surprised by Mark Taylor's answer to that question. And he pinpoints it. He kind of remembers that, no, he hadn't. Like that was, um, that was kind of like, felt like the biggest test of his career. Steve Waugh kind of said something similar. Um, like it was a, you know, a world test championship final one all going into the, to the last test uh, and it kind of just felt like everything was going Australia's way, even though they had lost that test. I mean, Ambrose did this amazing interview with um, Tony Gregg. I, th- I think it was before the third test where he basically just admitted he was nowhere near his best and he was really struggling for confidence and, um, you know, had issues with the team. And it was just kind of like, you just wouldn't get kind of get that interview today with a fast bowler just admitting that he's, um, that he's nowhere near it and also kind of being wrong, right? Like he was, he was an incredible bowler and he, and he showed in that test. Um, but yeah, it, it did. I reckon it felt like the biggest test of the Aussies careers. Mm. And again, coming into the fourth test, we, we touched on another similar t- uh, subject, which is the pitch um, mm. where it seemed like a bit of a, a bit of a mirror like pitch that um, the cracks were kind of filled Um Again, how how did the how did both teams kind of feel about that particular pitch going into that test match as opposed to the previous test match where it seemed a very a very different pitch almost? I think it was fitting for what uh, the contest that they hoped to get, and it was probably more used to you know these guys, the Australians, uh, especially the batters had, had all been to the West Indies uh, mostly. They'd mostly gone in in ninety ninety one. Um, and it, that was the kind of pitch that the West Indians were known for, like these kind of fast, glassy 
uh, bouncy pitches that would suit their batters because, you know, most visiting teams wouldn't bring bowlers that were as quick as their own. Uh, but then when you had incredibly quick bowlers like Marshall and Holding and um, and then the other guys that come, it really helped them uh, kind of get the ball through and kind of whistling around the ears. So I think it was a, it was a, more of a sense of familiarity with um, compared to what that had. Mm. Do you reckon um, the fact that they changed or the, the groundsman changed those two pitches so drastically, did that show a, did that show a, a nervousness or um, a worry in that West Indian camp? Do you reckon? Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I reckon it did. Um, and Richie, I think there's a quote in there about how he never pressured uh, groundsmen to, um, you know, prepare certain wickets. Uh, and, you know, I take, I take that on face value. However, like, I, I think we all know that the home team has a lot of say in how pitches are prepared. You even compared to how England, um, you know, it was a bit of a diversion here, but the, the most recent Asher series we've just had and the pitches England kind of unashamedly said that they wanted, uh, they stuck to that for five tests, which I, th- I think is telling, like, even though they lost the first two tests, mm. um, they, yeah, they got quicker pitches, but I think what they were asking for stayed, the same the whole way through so yeah the fact that they're um you know they get one test they lose it uh they turn up to trinidad it's a raging seamer and then all of a sudden they're back on what they're familiar with um absolutely showed that they were yeah i guess maybe rattled's the wrong word but i mean they're all you got to remember like this was probably the start of the decline of i mean it might have started even before that and the great players papered over the cracks but a lot of issues in West Indian cricket in terms of administration and guys from different Island hating each other and um, just issues with how the game was being played over there. And we've seen that played out, um, you know, in the, in the decades since, but that was, yeah, probably some of those, those cracks were starting to show. Yeah. And um, after Australia bowled West Indies out for 265 in their, in their in West Indies first innings, they, um, scored a lot of runs in their second uh, innings, including a massive 231 run partnership between Mark and Steve War, where Mark War, um, sorry, Steve War finished on 200. At this time, was this a, for Steve War in particular, was this a moment to say he is one of the world's, world's best batsmen? Because he did have a few inconsistencies, especially during the start of his career. He did, yeah. And he was a different kind of player. Like when he first came into international cricket, he was... Uh, batting at nine, I think at the one day team and, and bowling a lot more. Like he, his bowling was, was seriously quick and, and Mark could get him through as well. Uh, and he played a lot of tests. I reckon it took him 27 tests maybe to get that first hundred. Um, and I think, I think there might've been a stat in this um, article as well about uh, pre and post that, um, that innings. Uh, I think he, he averaged over 50 after it and before it, he averaged maybe under under 30 or, or, you know, in the mid thirties. So uh, it was a massive turning point for him in his career. The whole series was for him. And um, it was, it was really interesting speaking to him. I remember about it because, you know, he's got the, um, the confrontation with Kurtley, but uh, which he spoke beautifully about. He kind of just had so much respect for the guy and how good a bowler he was. Um, but it, it was uh, going back to the catch, I think in the the first test where he caught Lara and it kind of seemed like even his teammates upon reflection kind of go, oh, like maybe, maybe he didn't catch that. Um, it, even though I take Steve's, what Steve says about it on face value that he thought he caught it at the time. Um, so, but he was getting abused in every island he went to, like they were kind of telling him, um, and especially Trinidad, 
uh, where they played the third test, which is where Lara's from, you know, they were fuming at him. Um, and so that he was persona non grata in, in, in every Island in the Caribbean. So he had a lot of kind of personal stuff um, kind of going on and he just kind of had to chin it out. And that was a bit of a sign of things to come, right? Like he, he was kind of the ultimate ice man for the next 10 years where whenever things were tough, whenever his team kind of needed him, he was the guy to come through. Mm, and obviously uh, West um, Australia bowled West Indies out for 213 in the second innings and won the game by an innings and 53 runs. This obviously started a massive period of domination for Australia, including smashing the record for test match wins in a row uh, with 16 twice, I believe. In mm-hmm. 1999 and 2000, 2000, 2000, 2005, 2008, sorry. Hypothetical question. If Australia hadn't have won that final test match and West Indies had won it instead, do you reckon the Australians would have achieved some of the, the, the records like they have and the dominance like they did in the mid to late 90s and into the early 2000s? Yes, I do. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because I'm a biased Aussie. Like I think the quality of the players was was there that even though, you know, I don't think Warren's career plays out any differently. I mean, for Steve Warren, maybe maybe it is a, a real turning point that if he didn't get that 200 there and um, Courtney Brown, I think, dropped him on 42, who was the, the backup wicketkeeper. You're kind of just going back to West Indians, kind of the infighting, um, Richie Richardson is still dirty on Junior Murray that he didn't play in that test, the the regular wicketkeeper, because he had a cold and called him up the night before the the fourth test and said, um, and Richie Richardson couldn't believe that he's calling up the night before. He was kind of saying, wait till the morning. Um, so so Courtney Brown, the reserve wicketkeeper, dropped Steve War if he'd caught that. Um, you know, how does how does War's career uh, look different? I mean, I'm sh- I reckon he'd have the turning point. It just wouldn't have been then. It wouldn't have been in the biggest uh, kind of moment. Uh, so, look, I, I do think it's not often in sport that you kind of get these great um, moments where a, a shift in generational kind of thing, and you see it in other sports as well. Like the uh, comparing it to the O five Ashes, I think is a, is a decent one. However. England probably their um, you know really great years didn't come for quite a while after that. Like that was that was obviously easily Michael Vaughan's greatest achievement as captain. But um, you know in terms of beating Australia in Australia, that was a much different team when they came to Australia in ten eleven. When they won in India in, in twenty twelve, that was Andrew Strauss's team, right? Um, not not Vaughan. So and and Australia then in oh six oh seven wiped the floor with England and had a few more years of. Of dominance, so you just didn't get that kind of clean, clean break, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, to answer your question, uh, I think it, it all would have happened. It just would have been slightly, slightly different. Mm. And obviously, in this in this series, we talk a lot about great a great sides. We obviously talked a lot about the West Indies in the late seventies, early eighties. Where do you think this this Australian sides and maybe the Australian sides uh, later on compares to those West Indian sides? Yeah, great question. So it wasn't a fully formed Australian team. So you kind of look through that lineup and uh, not weak spots, but, you know, there weren't in some of the positions, like, you know, Julian didn't play many more tests. Rifle Rifle had a pretty actually underrated career, but um, the team that I always kind of think of as being the absolute best one was probably more around 99, 2000 when you had Mark Taylor had moved on, 
Um, and you had Slater and I think Hayden opening the batting. Pont, it was when Ponting kind of came in, and remember he he was carrying the drinks on this tour. He wasn't even wasn't even playing, so you didn't have Ponting. You didn't have Warren at his best. You didn't have McGrath at his best. And Gillespie was was um, was then in that kind of two thousands team with Brett Lee, Adam Gilchrist, another you know world class player. If I'd put that that team against you know the West Indies team from maybe the late 80s uh, where you had young Ambrose, young Walsh. Uh, you still had um, uh, Malcolm Marshall uh, Marshall and Holding. You kind of had those guys in the latter stages of their career. Um, and maybe you get a bit of Viv if you go back a bit further as well. So that would have been, that'd be the all time one that you, you know, what you plug into your um into you know EA cricket 2007 or Andrew Flintoff cricket 2007 as you probably probably had in in the UK um, and would just love to see it happen. Australia went on to clinch the series 2-1 and it was their first win in the West Indies since 1973. This marked the beginning of Australian cricket domination setting records that remain unbroken. They won 16 test matches in a row twice once between 1999 and 2000, and then again between 2005 and 2008, and really affirmed their place at the top of world cricket. As for the West Indies, they bounced back the following winter to beat New Zealand, but they were never the same dominant force that they were back in the 1980s. Thanks to Lewis for his insights into this episode. Next time I'll be discussing the 2005 Ashes series. Thank you for listening to another episode of Iconic Test Series.